Psalm 85, for the director of music of the sons of Korah, a psalm. You, Lord, showed favour to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. Restore us again, God our Saviour, and put away your displeasure towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will listen to what what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near, near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. Tim, come and take us through the psalm. Should we pray together? We thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that we can gather together and hear from you. Open our hearts. Help us to hear from you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few years ago when we moved to Manchester, we had the patch of, of wasteland that had passed for a back garden uh, behind our house. Uh, changed into a a neat little low-maintenance garden. And the garden looked really good for a while until we looked after a Labrador. Um, Well, Barney the Labrador was good at scaring away the numerous cats uh, that came into the garden, uh, but he also had a fondness for doing some digging and uh, cocking his legs over the the plants as well. So this, uh, this abuse that the garden was getting, our nice little garden... And uh, the uh, infamous Manchester rain uh, being very frequent as well, um, doing its work, uh, began to undo the work, uh, the good work that had been done in in that little back garden. Well, now that Barney's uh, in Japan, we've sent him off to Japan, and um, we're missing him very much. uh, But uh, now that he's he's there and uh, the weather's improving, we're getting out there and seeing what the, the, the situation is in that garden. Um, we're working out what's dead, what's alive, chucking things into our, our green bin and even getting online a little bit and finding out what we can prune and what we, what we shouldn't prune. It's a bit painful comparing photos of what it looked like just after it was done with what it looks like now, but it's important that we do that so that we can see uh, what it was and then how we might be able to improve it and even make it, even make it better than it was, although without the, the help of an actual gardener, Uh, with our gardening skills, that's probably uh, not too likely. But I think this this movement uh, that I've just talked about here uh, is actually close to what we find in Psalm 85. So in this psalm we find uh, find a a looking back, don't we, uh, to to remind us of what's been been accomplished. And it's also looking back to to remind us of what uh, can be now, and then it's, it's 
to inspire us to, to hope for something, something even more wonderful to come. Uh, in the psalm we see God's people have a responsibility not to, to mess up the garden, as it were, uh, by turning to folly in verse 8. But the spiritual flourishing of God's people in the Lord's place and under his rule depends wholly on the Lord, we see in this psalm. So he's, he's the great gardener who makes everything grow through his, his restoring and reviving grace. So in Psalm 85, looking back on the grace of the Lord to them, God's people pray for restoration and revival. They're trusting that the Lord will answer them and, and lead them into the fulfillment of his promises to them in the future. So as we take some time together to look at the psalm, let's, let's reflect how this, this dynamic relates to, to us too and our spiritual condition as the Lord's people here and now. Uh, the psalm's in four parts, as you'll see it laid out in your Bible, I'm sure. Uh, and let's follow its movement under, under four headings. So proclaiming his past grace, and then pleading his present grace, then patiently waiting on his promises, and then proclaiming his future grace. So let's begin with uh, proclaiming his past grace in verses 1 to 3. And here the psalmist uh, proclaims the Lord's past grace to his people, uh, to Jacob, which represents all Israel. And all the verbs uh, in verses 1 to 3 are in, in the past tense, aren't they? And we constantly find this, this looking back uh, on the Lord's past acts, don't we, in, in the Psalms and actually in the whole Bible as we read the Bible. There's this looking back in the rearview mirror, as it were, to, to what the Lord has done for his people, uh, a, a recalling to mind and a proclaiming of it and, and celebrating it as God's people. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the features of Japanese culture is uh, the importance placed on the past and the past's place in the present. Um, some have called it memorialism. Uh, it shows in how the, the ancestors are, are honoured within uh, Japanese uh, culture, whether or not people actually believe in an afterlife. Uh, people people honour the ancestors. And also in, uh, in various forms of, of daily life in Japan too. Uh, diary keeping, for example, has always been very, very popular in Japan. It's even been called an obsession for uh, Japanese people to, to, to log uh, what they've been doing each day. I'm always really impressed by how much uh, of their childhood and uh, significant things that happened in their childhood when, the, when people were growing up, people can remember. Um, my own memories of uh, childhood are pretty jumbled up and, and vague a lot of the time. Um, but it's because uh, these, these important points in people's uh, lives, when, when children are growing up in Japan, they're, they're marked, they're given lots of, lots of attention and significance. Uh, in, in schools and communities. There are all kinds of ceremonies and uh, formalities and records made to memorialize uh, these significant events in life. And Christian faith shouldn't just concern itself with the now. That would make it rootless and shallow. 
They should always be, be looking back uh, to what God has done and drawing nutrition from that. I think in our uh, cultural climate today, there's, uh, there's almost an idolizing of now, an idolizing of our ways of, of thinking and doing things. The past treated a bit like an old junk shop, and anything uh, problematic can be chucked into the, into the skip, anything that, uh, that jars with our ideological uh, standards. But we, uh, as Christians, we can't afford to just chuck things out from the past indiscriminately. We can't afford to airbrush our ancestral past, as it were. If we do that, then we won't, we won't learn from it and we'll actually bring harm upon ourselves. No, we're a people with a, a history and a heritage. It's not a dry, uh, dusty record, uh, just a record of things that happened in the past. It's a living history. It's a living history because it's a history of how uh, the living God has acted to save his people. What he's done for us in our slavery to sin. And it's all centered on God and his mission to save. If you just look back at the, the very structure of Psalm 85, it's, it's literally God-centered. Uh, notice how in the beginning, uh, in verse 1, you have his name, the Lord. And then there in the, in the middle, in verses 7 and 8, repeated twice, the Lord, the Lord. And then right near the end, again, verse 12, the Lord, God-centered. And this past is always relevant and meaningful to us and also to the whole world because God has revealed his character in his dealings with his people. Uh, the psalmist is looking back at Israel's history and proclaiming how the Lord was true in all his ways uh, to who he said he is. Well, if we know the uh, book of Exodus at all, we might be able to pick up uh, some echoes in Psalm 85, especially of Exodus chapters 32 to 34. Uh, in those chapters, the Lord proclaimed his name to Moses, as we have up on the screen. Uh, after the Israelites had grievously sinned, I'm sure you know the story, uh, breaking the covenant with the Lord, Moses pleaded with the Lord to show favor uh, in his sight. So I've put in bold then, several times. And we see that in the, in the psalm. The Lord graciously uh, agreed, responded to the intercession of Moses and agreed to show favor again to the Israelites by promising to go with them into the promised land and by renewing the covenant with them. And he proclaims his name uh, to Moses in that uh, really key uh, part of the book of Exodus and a wonderful uh, couple of verses to memorize. He told Moses he'd show him his glory as he, proclaimed, as he proclaimed his name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And so in the psalm we're looking at today, we look back and see how the Lord has been completely faithful to his name. 
Just as Moses had pleaded, the Lord showed favor. Look again at verse 1. And he restored them. He forgave their iniquity. Verse 2. And as we follow Israel's story, we realize, don't we, that it's, it's not a one-off. Time and again, the Lord forgave his people and restored them. Uh, verse 1 again. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. And this is a, a reference to the restoration of, of God's people from exile to, to Babylon, uh, to their land. The King James Version uh, has it as, Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Again, the Lord's faithfulness to his promises. And this same Lord has continued to act in faithful, faithfulness to his name. We've already been singing about that, haven't we, this morning and, and hearing from his word. And we stand at a point over two and a half thousand years uh, later with the cross of Jesus revealing the fullness of the Lord's glory. What favor he has shown to us in the cross. He's restored our fortunes through the cross, freeing us from captivity to sin and Satan and making us alive with him in Christ when all we had to look forward to was was death and hell. He's forgiven our iniquity, our wickedness in rejecting his ways and covered all our sin by the cross. He's set aside his wrath that we were under because of our sin and has turned from his fierce anger towards us because of the cross. So we have the greatest reason, don't we, for for looking back, for looking back on what was accomplished in the past at the cross. And we also have the greatest reason for proclaiming uh, the gospel to this gospel because it continues to, to change us and anyone who would believe from, from every nation, from every people. And each one of us can look back and, and thank the Lord for how in different ways he's worked in our lives over the years. How he graciously broke down your hostility or indifference to Jesus and his gospel and brought you to himself and into his family. How he answered your prayers for a difficult situation in the family or at work. How he helped you to trust him through an illness that, that didn't get better. Or how to show more love and patience in a relationship that, that hurts you and tested you. And it's good too, isn't it, that we look back as, as church families on how the Lord has led us and what he's done uh, for us. I still remember the anniversary events not too long ago and uh, the celebration that that was here at Rock. So let's not forget, but recall this past, uh, this past but always, these past but always significant works of the Lord for us. So we rejoice in and we we proclaim what the Lord has graciously done for us. We know our many sins forgiven and covered by the blood of Christ's cross. And we're assured of our justification by the cross and we stand in Christ's righteousness. But we also know, sadly, that we continue to sin. And we have a tendency, don't we, to to stray from the Lord, uh, the good shepherd of our souls. 
So the psalmist leads us to, to plead with the Lord for his present grace. Uh, verse 3 says the Lord turned from his fierce anger in the NIV, as you have it, if you have it there. And then in verse 4, um, he asks that he would restore us again, restore us again. Again, just to reference the King James uh, Version, which puts it as, Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Turn us, O God of our salvation. So our restoration is in our, our turning to, to God. And the Bible makes it very clear indeed that God will only turn himself from his fierce anger, his wrath at our sin, by a perfect atoning sacrifice offered in our place. Well, our attitude uh, as God's people who know our sins atoned for, it isn't, thank you for turning from your fierce anger uh, toward me, Lord. Now I can get on and live as I'd like to. It must be, thank you for turning from your fierce anger toward me, Lord. Restore me by turning my life to you. Give me an increasing hatred of my sin. Give me a responsive, repentant heart that turns away from sin and turns to you. The Lord's uh, present grace is experienced through his gift to us of repentance. Although that's painful, isn't it, to realize our sin. And, and need to repent. But we experience his grace through that. And this repentance has already been uh, acknowledging this morning is one of the marks of the true Christian, isn't it? The one who wants to live wholly for the Lord in ways that, that honor him. Well, Charles Simeon, the uh, uh, vicar of Holy Trinity here in Cambridge a couple of hundred years ago, said this, repentance is in every way, in every view, so desirable, so necessary, so suited to honor God, that I seek that above all. An apprising of repentance like this uh, develops in, in reverence for the Lord. It's the prayer of the believer who, who fears the Lord. Look at verse 9. So I ask myself, do I really fear the Lord? Do you really fear the Lord? Do we fear the Lord? Our Christian life should have uh, reverence and repentance at its core. Because we've come into a relationship with a, with a holy God. And this holy God has taken hold of us. He started a work of restoring us into his holy image again. But there's something unsettling in this psalm. If we look at the second half of, of verse 4 and verse 5, what does the psalmist say? Put away your displeasure towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Well, the psalmist has, has proclaimed what the Lord has done in covering our sins, but now he's pleading the Lord's present grace. He's asking that the Lord will put away his displeasure or his indignation towards us the Lord's anger has been uh, towards us his anger towards us has been decisively turned away at the cross we will never have to face his anger thanks to his amazing grace 
Well, could this idea here in, in the psalm of, of God's ple- displeasure just be uh, something we don't need to think about as Christians? Is it just an Old Testament idea? But then we do need to reflect, don't we? Um, we could think about the, the letters uh, in Revelation or the Apostle Paul speaking to the churches. And there are challenges to, to the church. And we do need to, to reflect on those things. Not the false accusation of things that uh, are untrue, but as we think together as a community, as we think together as individuals before the Lord, and we're honest before the Lord, we want to be, we want to be right with the Lord, don't we? The Lord cares so much for us. He loves us so much. He cares about the holiness of us, of, of his churches. He cares about us and doesn't want us to uh, persist in, in ways that he's warned us not to go in. So we have this in, in the psalm here. And what's our response as we think about anything in our own hearts uh, or anything that we see in our own uh, church uh, as, we, as we are before the Lord? Is it the cry of the psalmist's heart? In, in, in the third of his uh, three questions that we see in the psalm, as we look at verse 6, what does he say? He cries out, will you not revive us again? Will you not revive us again? Well, there isn't a specific word for uh, revival in the Bible, but, but at various times in the Old Testament, God does revive the spiritual life of his people. Uh, last week, I know you were looking at uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6, uh, Mike was preaching from, from that, and that's one great example of uh, God uh, reviving his people in a particular way. We read this psalm now through the lens of uh, the, the once-for-all restoration that the Lord has done for us in Jesus Christ. He's fulfilled everything, hasn't he, that was foreshadowed in Israel's story. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit who gives us life and we do rejoice in the Lord now. But at times the Lord does uh, sovereignly and graciously come to his people in special times of revival or awakening. As we look back in history, I know just a little bit about the connections Bobby and his family and the church have uh, with the Mukti mission. And Bobby will um, be able to let me know if I get any of these things wrong but it's been uh, really fascinating to learn a little bit about that story and uh, is it Pandita Rama Bai is that correct and the the Mukti revival a wonderful story to to read about Uh, back in 1905 um, I read how uh, a prayer meeting was started by a missionary called Minnie Adams Abrams sorry uh, a missionary who's serving there at the Mukti mission uh, the prayer meeting that she started grew more and more in numbers, and uh, eventually there were 550 people meeting together and praying twice a day. Um, the story goes that at 3.30 a.m. on June the 29th, 1905, Minnie was woken up by a, a dorm supervisor with the news that one of the senior girls had, had suddenly awakened with the fire coming down on her. Uh, the supervisor told uh, that she'd seen this fire and she'd ran across the room to get a, a pail of water to put out the fire 
and then realized that it wasn't that kind of fire. It was the Holy Spirit uh, coming down. Minnie went to the girls' dorm and uh, found them on their knees, weeping, praying, and confessing their sins. And then the following evening, when uh, uh, Ramabai was teaching, the Holy Spirit descended with power, and all the girls began to pray aloud so that she had to stop talking. Little children, middle-sized girls and young women wept bitterly and confessed their sins, the story goes. So there was this intense awareness of, of sin, uh, but also a vivid realization with, as, we, as we read the story of uh, Jesus' sacrifice for sin and what that meant for them. And following this experience of, of sin, a conviction of sin and the gospel, there was intense joy, it's reported. Uh, one famous old preacher said uh, on Psalm 85 verse 6, A genuine revival without joy in the Lord is as impossible as spring without flowers or day dawn without light. And isn't this what we see right here in uh, verse 6 of Psalm 85? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Um, Of course, what's been happening in Asbury and Kentucky uh, over the last two weeks is getting an awful lot of attention on social media, uh, on the news. Uh, People have highlighted a lot of good uh, related to to what's been happening there. I'm sure you know. I'm sure you've been uh, looking at this as well. Uh, Important questions are being asked too about it, which is right. We should be be, um, discerning and, and not be gullible too. I think it's all it's also new isn't it that honestly can we can we draw any balanced conclusions at this point um, I did hear that believers there who were there at the beginning of, of it were actually reluctant to call it a revival themselves because they didn't want to preempt uh, what God might be doing in their midst they didn't want to control it but I think we can say that it's uh, for, for many many people there it's been as uh, Pete, the apostle Peter said a time of refreshing from the Lord at the least. I asked one of our uh, mission partners at Grace Church Manchester what he thought about this. Um, Daniel Raju, he, uh, he's church planting with a team in northern India. He's, uh, he's from the south. I asked him what he thought about what's happening in Kentucky. Uh, he told me actually that his, his forefathers came to know the Lord through one of the uh, church movements that was sparked from the Mukti revival all those years ago, which is really, really interesting to hear that. But Daniel said, um, in my opinion, true marks of revival would be going back to the scriptures, increased emphasis upon missions, and fulfilling the Great Commission. He said, what's happening in in Kentucky is valid if this is the outcome. Um, He also said that in North India, where, where he's Uh, ministering now he said it's going through a revival in the form of historic church growth even though this is not as visible or or as dramatic as the asbury one it's probably not going to be on social media in the same way is it well we can look out for uh, fruit in the years and decades to come can't we? we can look out for how it will work out in real life discipleship in social engagement in 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 evangelism as people move out as we know what happened in, back in 1905, it wasn't a flash in the pan, was it? All that wonderful uh, work has come from it that we can um, hear about and engage with now. 
But what about us here in the UK? Uh, what, what would it mean for us if we went away and we, we, we prayed verse 6 of Psalm 85? Here in Cambridge or, or, or up in Manchester, revive us, O Lord, that your people may rejoice in you. It's good to long, isn't it, to experience more of God. Uh, and we should be open to uh, what the Lord may choose to, to do among us by his spirit. But we also recognize that it's in the ordinary, week-by-week week, uh, life of the local church, in hearing and applying the gospel to ourselves, in taking the Lord's Supper uh, together as a community, praying together that the Lord will, he will continue to form us, uh, to shape us, to refresh us, and to, to prepare us to go out and serve him in the world in the different ways that we do, in those various ways. a photo of the, uh, the Mukti mission from many years ago there. Um, but Christ, Christ Jesus, must be central to the life of our, our churches if, uh, these, if this discipleship, if this, if this formation is, is to happen, surely. I found uh, this book by Andrew Fellows, um, Smuggling Jesus Back into the Church, How the Church Became Worldly and What to Do About It. Uh, a brilliant read, really insightful, uh, challenging about where the church is, uh, in his view, in the West today, uh, largely. Many of you kn- will know Andrew, I'm sure, because he heads up the, the brilliant uh, Christian Heritage Ministry here in Cambridge. I think he's still the, the director of that. But um, in the book, he does a, a deep dive into what worldliness really means biblically. We hear that word worldliness, don't we, and uh, think all kinds of things. But he says the, uh, the, the real challenge to the church from the world, biblically speaking, it, it's not primarily behavioral, you know, what we, what we wear, where we might go, those kind of things. Uh, not necessarily insignificant things, but that's not primarily what it's about. The real challenge is from uh, cultural values, from the, from the isms of our secular society. Uh, these isms that have actually a, a hugely significant but also very subtle uh, shaping influence on us today. And these values have, in many ways, been uh, working on the church and, and, and secularizing the church, which has led to a loss of spiritual vitality in the church. It's not a book that's out to uh, you know, condemn the church or, or say negative stuff. I think Andrew was a pastor himself. He, you, you definitely um, see his love for the church. It's out of concern that he's, he's writing uh, from this perspective. But it, but it explores, the book really explores what it means to, uh, to, as it were, bring Christ back to the center of our, our life and worship. And he talks about our need for both reformation, scriptural reformation, and revival uh, at the same time. So, yeah, well worth reflecting on, I think. But let's get back to our psalm and uh, let's move on with the psalmist as, uh, as we see how uh, one, of the, one of the main evidences of hearts being revived by the Holy Spirit is, is a desire to wait, wait upon the Lord, to wait patiently upon the Lord. To wait upon him because he, he's at the center uh, of importance in our life together as Christ church and at the center of each of us as, as his people, as his saints. patiently awaiting his promises. 
And from verse 8, there's a resolution made, isn't there, if you look. I will listen to what God the Lord says. Uh, The ESV says, let me hear what God the Lord will speak. So it's a resolution to patiently wait on the Lord to hear what he has to say to us. It's like the boy Samuel uh, in the temple when the Lord called him. He said, speak for your servant hears. Well, isn't it, isn't it vital that we cultivate this attitude, uh, this posture of listening carefully to the Lord, uh, to, be, to be resolved in our hearts to, to listen to him whose every word is truth? Well, what is filling our, our ears? What's distracting us, maybe? There are so many, there are many good things that we hear, but many, many lies, many half-truths as well that the word, world will tell us and that can uh, shape us in how we think. But at the same time, we might be so pre- preoccupied with what we have to say, what we are discussing about our opinions about this and that, that we're not really listening to what the Lord might want to say uh, to us as his people. But when we do listen to the Lord, what wonderful things we can hear from his lips. The psalm says he promises peace to us. There in verse 8. And in response to this, this promise of peace, there's a request that the Lord would keep us in the way of wisdom. As we've mentioned already, let us not turn back uh, to folly and sin again after the Lord has turned to us and we've turned to him. We might pray something like this from uh, Robert Parker. It's a simple prayer. Preserve me this day in your fear and favor. And in the end, bring me to your everlasting kingdom through Jesus Christ. And as we pray uh, for preservation in the Lord's fear and favor, we can have the same uh, confidence that we see here that the psalmist has as he's asked this, uh, these important questions in verses 5 to 7. If you look again at verse 9, look at the confidence. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Because of Jesus, surely we will enter into the fullness of his salvation seeing his glory in the Lord's everlasting kingdom. And he, the Lord Jesus, is interceding for us before his Father. So we've been on a journey of uh, reorientation through this psalm. And the last few verses that we'll look at, they uh, direct us to the future uh, and paint us a, a beautiful picture of the Lord's glory dwelling in the land. It's a picture here of uh, perfect harmony and unity that we have. Love and faithfulness meet together like friends. Righteousness and peace kiss each other with mutual warmth and affection. Uh, Faithfulness, or it could be uh, put truth sometimes, springs forth from the earth, sprouting up and growing like new grass or flowers in spring. While righteousness looks down from heaven like the warming sun. Everything is in harmony. 
Everything's united. Everything's in balance. Isn't it the world as, as God intended it to be? We can, we can see that here, I think. As it was in the beginning when he called it very good. And as it will be, but, but even better, even more uh, glorious when the new heavens and the new earth are revealed. Just another quotation for you. Someone reflecting on Psalm 85. As we pray this prayer, we realize we are being caught up in a plea not simply for personal revival, but cosmic restoration. We find ourselves praying, in fact, for nothing less than God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And if we look a bit uh, more closely at verse 10, there are four massively important words there in verse 10. What have we got? We've got love, faithfulness, righteousness, and peace. And these are all attributes, they're characteristics of, of God, aren't they, that we see in him. Well, if we take from these four words, uh, love and peace as kind of the, the bookends, as it were, of uh, these ca- characteristics of, of God, if we see it that way, we can remember his, his, his heart is love towards us poor needy sinners. And he longs to reconcile us to himself, bringing, bringing peace between him and us. And that's what he's done, isn't it? And then in between love and peace, uh, there in verse 10, we have faithfulness and righteousness. In his faithfulness, in his truthfulness to who he is, and, and, and his righteousness, his perfect justice in, in uh, regard to sin, and the need to punish it as seen. So this psalm and, and the whole Old Testament raises the question, how can these characteristics of God, how can these attributes of God uh, be reconciled? So we think of our great need. Well, the New Testament shows gloriously how uh, God himself reconciles them through Christ. Because only through the blood of Christ's cross, and we could think of Colossians chapter 1, uh, is peace made. Peace made w- between us and God and with all things, all things, wh- whether on earth or in heaven, we're told, reconciled to God through the blood of the cross. And this is his, his harmonizing grace that we see wonderfully in the scriptures. Well, the psalm uh, began by leading us in reflecting on God's past acts of grace. Uh, it's led us to, to plead for his present grace and to patiently wait on him to, ful- to fulfill his promises, uh, to long for his future grace in the harmony of all things through Christ. And the last verse, verse 13, it, it pictures God's righteousness as, as leaving a, a pathway uh, for us to follow in for us to follow the Lord Jesus into the glorious future that's been prepared for us. I'd just like to finish with uh, a prayer written by uh, Martin Luther uh, responding to this uh, psalm, to Psalm 85. Should we just pray together? Remember not, O God, our transgressions against us, and record not our sins in your book, but cast them into the depth of the sea, and remember them no more forever. 
Impute to us the obedience of your Son, Jesus Christ, who fulfilled all righteousness for us and gave himself a sacrifice for our sins. Let us live for his sake and enable us to work, walk worthy of our calling. Through Christ Jesus we pray. Amen.